Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome, dear listeners, to another very exciting episode of Reconsider. And today's episode is more exciting than normal. We've got for you today a very special guest. Yeah, joining us today is Fonseca from Visual Politique. Visual Politique is a really wonderful YouTube channel that produces top-notch political videos every week. It's in Spanish, and I came across it when I was trying to work on my Spanish a little bit. Xander's been a big fan for a while. Yeah, really very quality work. He is also the author of a book called The Podemos Method, Marxist Marketing for Non-Marxist Parties. And he's also a former political consultant, so he's basically a big deal. Yeah, and this book that he wrote, you know, like I know I wrote a book and some people read it, but Fonseca wrote a book that was such a such a compelling and accurate explanation of how political parties marketed themselves in Spain that one of the parties in Spain actually picked up his book and used it as a strategy guide and then hired him as a consultant. So he knows the in and outs of electoral politics. He knows the in and outs of marketing politics. We're really excited to have him with us today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Fonseca. Fonseca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. So before we dig into what I think is going to be a really interesting episode, I would like to give a pitch for something that I think is going to be very exciting because while I mentioned Visual Politique is an all-Spanish political YouTube channel, right now what you can go online and see is a brand new all-English version of Visual Politique that's just came out. There's a couple of videos online and they're stellar. Yeah, this is just the kind, this is like the YouTube version of Reconsider, so it's something we're a big fan of as well. So you can find it on YouTube at Visual Politic, that's with a K, P-O-L-I-T-I-K, Visual Politic. So, with that, let's get started. So, Fonseca, given that you wrote this book on Podemos, I think that's as good a place to start the conversation as any. And since we're generally talking to an American audience, maybe we can just start by saying, you know, what is Podemos and why is it such a big deal right now? Well, first, Podemos is, a, I would consider it an extreme left-wing political party. It's like a, it started out as a spin-off from the communist the Spanish, uh, the, uh, a spin-off of the Spanish Communist Party, which is called Izquierda Unida, Left United. 
and, and this spin-off was created by former political advisors from this party and also teachers at the Universidad Complutense, which is one of the biggest universities in Spain. And they are a big deal because they went from zero to hero in a matter of months. I mean, they, they were funded in January 2014 and in six months they were leading every, every electoral poll. Plus, nowadays they are the third biggest political party in Spain with more than 80 seats in the, in the parliament and they are hitting to become the second biggest party because now it seems that they are um, outnumbering the, um, the socialist party which used to be the, the second biggest. So just so our American listeners can get a sense of how big the party is, you mentioned they have 80 seats in parliament. That's, that's like a pretty significant percentage, right? It's not like our Green Party that maybe gets 2 or 3% of the presidential vote every four years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about a political party that might become the might be in the government in the in not in the near future because we had elections just some months ago. But they have and they have pretty good chances to be in power one day. They are actually in some in some cities in some city halls. You can say that they they hold the power now. It's not 80, sorry. It's 67 seats in the, in the parliament. In a parliament of 350 seats, they have 67, uh, 67, which makes them the third biggest political party in Spain. That's fascinating. All in a span of just two years, really. So what did Podemos do differently than other political parties that let them grow so exponentially quickly? Well, in summary, I would say they created a so-called, what I call in my book, a political product. So instead of, you know, usually politicians, the, the classical politicians, they come to you and they tell you, look, this is my ideology, this is my program, uh, I will hire a political advisor, a political strategist to make it look nicer, that's why I stand for, and that's what you should vote. Podemos doesn't. Podemos first make a, let's call it a market research, they see what people demand, what are the needs of different niches of the, of the voter market. They put them all together and they create a political product, which it doesn't have to be specifically, especially new, especially advanced, but it meets the real, the actual needs of their audience. So that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting reframing of the idea of the political process, right? I mean, this is like the difference between marketing and advertising. Advertising is all about making the, uh, making the audience want what you have. And marketing is all about having what the audience want. So this is the same, but applied to politics. So when we look to your book title, the subtitle is Marxist Marketing for Non-Marxist Parties. And that's the English translation. So this is a fairly provocative title. In it, you're focusing on the marketing element of Marxist ideology rather than the political or ethical implications of the ideology itself. And what we're curious about is why did you choose to focus on the marketing aspect of Marxism uh, rather than something else? And, and what are you trying to communicate to readers with your title? So let me tell you about the story of how did we start writing this book? Because 
it's we, it's not, it, it has more than one author. We are two, me and my friend David. And we started thinking about writing this book when we were working in the elections 2011 on the campaign team of Mariano Rajoy, the conservative candidate. One of these nights where you are at the office eating pizza and trying to finish working, we were just talking about politics and how to improve the campaign. And usually left-wing political parties, they are better at communicating because and when I say left, I'm not talking about the American liberals. I'm talking about communist parties and green parties in, in Europe. They are really good at communicating and plus they achieve something really good. And is that if you say now you are a communist, no one is going to frown upon you. Communism is still a respectable ideology despite all the failures that they had in the past. While, for instance, fascism or national socialism are a taboo. Luckily enough, uh, no one can say they stand for these ideas without sounding politically incorrect. Marxism still is a thing, at least in Europe. And one of the reasons why it is is because it's, it has so good marketing. Both of us, my, my friend and I, we were studying in very left-wing universities and we had to study Marxism. So when we were having this discussion, we, we realized that, that it's not that Marxism has a really good marketing, but Marxism is a good marketing by itself. Like, Marxism is like a tool. If you use it for the economy, you're gonna, have, you're gonna screw it up. But if you use it for the marketing, you can have a really good framework to, to start working with. It's not pure casualty that most of the Marxist authors come from the field of psychology, linguistics, sociology, in general, things that help you to understand how human people perceive the world, perceive reality. Like, for instance, all the liberal authors, liberal or capitalist authors, say Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, even Keynes, they come from the fields of uh, economics, law, business schools, while Marxist authors, they all come from psychology and all these other fields of knowledge. So the final outcome is that the liberal authors, they know a lot about how their reality works, while Marxist authors, they know better how we perceive the reality. So that's why in order to create a good theoretical framework for marketing, the best authors you can find are in the communist side of the spectrum. I think that's a pretty fascinating idea. So, I mean, first off, I'll just throw an addendum there because you mentioned the prevalence of communism in Europe, or at least communist ideology being still socially acceptable. That totally also exists in the U.S. I mean, I lived for years in, in the Bay Area, which is kind of a, a left-leaning area, and definitely ran into a lot of very, very highly paid, some influential people who had or at least accepted those ideas as somewhat commonplace, right? Yeah, probably in the United States, it's not as popular. Like, there's, there's, sure. there's no, like, communist party that has any legs, and there's not even a socialist party that has legs, but it is the case that among the intelligentsia in the United States, when you say you're a communist, people go, ooh, that's interesting, you know, even if they disagree, um, which most people do, but if you say you're a fascist... Everyone, you know, everyone thinks you're a monster. Marxism has at least got a little bit more legs in the United States than fascism as well. Yeah. 
I, I kind of want to explore this this idea of Marxism as, as a tool that helps you construct some sort of identity because I think that kind of plays into a lot of the Podemo story. So in the beginning of your book, you point out some of the differences between what you call business marketing and political marketing. And from that discussion come to what I think is a fairly interesting idea, which is that political parties are able to basically present somewhat or completely incoherent ideas through their marketing strategies because the positions that much of the electorate holds and that they're appealing to is also incoherent. So how is political marketing different than business marketing? And how do these ideological inconsistencies sustain themselves in that dialogue? Well, the first, the, the main difference between political and business marketing is that political marketing is a so-called zero-sum game and business marketing is a cooperative game. This means when you are voting for, if, if Hillary Clinton wins, Donald Trump loses and vice versa. And when you're voting for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton, I mean, you, you cannot vote two candidates at the same time. You have to choose either Hillary or Trump. While in business marketing, Pepsi and Coke, they can have a pretty good year at the same time. And you can go to the supermarket and buy a Coke bottle and a Pepsi bottle at the same time. So if Pepsi wins, doesn't mean that Coca-Cola is gonna lose. That's the main difference, and that changed absolutely the rules of the game. Because when you are making business marketing, you don't need necessarily your rival to do bad. But when you are doing political marketing, there is an opponent, and the opponent, as important as uh, I mean, the the opponent's failure is as important as your own success. We saw it, for instance, in the. Um, uh, in these last elections with uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton, Trump didn't make such a great outcome, but Hillary Clinton made a really bad result. So that's why Donald Trump made a really... He won the elections. Yeah, and and to that point, you know, much of the book deals with the strategy that focuses on essentially taking a whole bunch of people that are very different and cobbling them together into an electoral base that's just big enough to get elected. And you talk about crafting a story to be able to do that, to bring together these different kinds of people. And as you think about both Podemos' success and the U.S. election, what I'm hoping is that, especially since I couldn't read the book because it's in Spanish, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. By crafting a story. Yeah, so like what kind of story did Podemos craft and how did they pull together a bunch of different groups in Spain? In Podemos playbook, the first step is to identify different niches based on their needs. So for instance, in the case of Spain, you have all these youngsters who cannot find a job and they are thinking about moving to another country, Germany, France, even US, and, and they are really unsatisfied with their system. Then you have, on the other hand, uh, those who had a house and it was taken out by the bank because they couldn't pay the mortgage. Then you have this other group of parents who are uh, sad and disappointed because the children had to leave to another country. They had to emigrate and, and they miss them and they feel like betrayed by the, by the system because it couldn't help them to, to find a job. 
So all these different groups, they are disappointed with the political system because they find it too undemocratic and they are unsatisfied with the system. So they take all these different groups and they merge them into a story or an identity, if you want to call it, put it that way, under what they call an empty significant. In the case of Podemos, it was the people against a necessary enemy, which in this case it was called La Casta. La Casta was the representation of all the evil, you can imagine. The big corporations, politicians, corrupted people, Germany trying to put really draconian conditions on the Spanish government. Whatever you can imagine as a bad thing could belong to La Casta. And that's a story. That's you, You're creating a story with a good and an evil. The good is the people, those who might vote for you, and the evil are, well, whoever you, you want to put it there. A big part of your book, and you, you kind of just covered this a little bit, but I'm just going to drive it home a little bit because it's something, it's a recurring theme that also comes up in the YouTube channel some, this idea of constructing a new identity through rhetoric that appeals to these different groups that might not usually have something to do with each other. And I think there's a part where you referenced Caesar and said, you know, it's the opposite of divide and conquer, it's unite and conquer. And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. But if the, if the cast, La Casta, is sort of the opposite of what Podemos is, this is a point that you bring up a lot in visual politique videos, which is, one way that you can effectively define an identity is to define it in opposition to other concepts. So if you can define what you're not, it's easier to say what you are. So Podemos is not this evil group of bankers and elite politicians that took money from the government in bailouts and didn't pay it back. We're the opposite of that. That's one of the reasons that Podemos has essentially been so effective at drawing in new folks, right? Yeah, actually, this is the most... Marxist thing from their playbook, the idea of defining something by its antagonist. That's pure Marxism and pure um, dialectics. Um, Marxist, Marx, Karl Marx, belongs to a s academia school called the dialectics. Those philosophers, you can put it also there in the same group, uh, Heidegger, Hegel, those philosophers who think that you don't define things by themselves, but by their relationships with their, their relationship with the environment. So for instance, when you say I have a mobile phone, a mobile phone, you define it by the relationship you have with it. Actually, a mobile phone is just a case with a lot of hardware inside and screws, cables, different pieces of metal, semi, semiconductors. But the way you relate with this device is by using it to make phone calls while you are in, on the move. So therefore you call it a mobile phone. So it defines the, the relationship that these objects have with the environment defines its own self. This applied to politics means that you define your identity based on your relationship with the environment. So for instance, I am Spanish, I am from Spain. But I never thought about my Spanish hood when I was living in Spain. The first time I thought about my Spanish hood is when I emigrated to Czech Republic. And here I am the Spanish boy. And people ask me about uh, bullfighting, and people think that I, I can cook, and that I like flamenco, <laughs> and all these things. No, no, it's, it's really true. I like flamenco. 
yeah, but I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that you're a great dancer. Yeah, I, I, actually, I, I gotta tell you something. It really helps those stereotypes. Sometimes it really, it really helps because you make more friends. People like you. People think you're fun, and they want to go on dates. With yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to go and dance <laughs> with you. And then when you say no, actually in my city no one dances. But but that's another thing. Like the, my, my point is, when I live in Spain, I'm not a Spanish because everyone is a Spanish. So being a Spanish doesn't define you. But when I'm in Czech Republic, I am a Spaniard. And probably if I go to America, I would be a European because being European makes me different from you. You know what I mean? So you define your identity when it helps you to set you apart from, from the rest of the people. So therefore you define your identity by your antagonist. And this concept is really powerful because once you set a really good antagonist or AKA enemy, it's very easy to justify everything. Because you can always say, well, yeah, probably uh, my candidate is bad, but, but the other one is worse. And that sounds suspiciously like some narratives that we've heard in the United States, perhaps in the past year. You know, my candidate is bad, but the other one is worse. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, this dialectic rhetorics uh, has been used as well, not only by communist leaders, but also by famous conservative politicians that existed in the 20s in Germany. And some of them, like for instance, Karl Schmidt, is one of the grandfathers of uh, national socialism. So in a way, national socialism has been also very inspired by these uh, dialectics. And other new politicians, they, they have used the Podemos playbook because at the end of the day, Podemos didn't create anything. The only different, the, the, the only thing that makes them unique is that they were the first ones in theorizing about it because they were teachers at the university, so they made a research and they did it knowing that they were doing it. Before, all these techniques were used more like by pure intuition. Podemos did it from a rational and scientific point of view. One of the things that I found most interesting about Podemos, and this is as Xander recounted the summary of the book to me <laughs> while we were like drinking some wine in Madrid, was that we had this zero-to-hero effect by a new party that assembled a coalition in a new way using a different narrative in the past. And he and I kind of looked at each other with this thought of, huh, this seems familiar. I remember reading very recently from the Washington Post. It said, Donald Trump is America's first independent president. Trump obviously was not someone who got along with the establishment Republican Party. He is not a conventional Republican, like, it or, like him or hate him. He's very, very different. Um, in fact, the only time he ran for president before was in 2000 with the Reform Party. He was a Democrat for a while. He was an independent for a while. Now he's a Republican. Donald Trump really does his own thing. And besides flirting with the idea of running for president in 2012, he hasn't been very politically active. He never built a party. He never built a ground game. He just showed up and suddenly he's president. So Donald Trump has created a political product and his own ideology. 
I mean, the classical Republican Party was composed by the fiscal conservatives, the hawkish, hawkish conservatives, and the religious conservatives, right? And they were like the three main groups of the Republican platform. Donald Trump destroyed all of that and created his own new, brand new platform, created merging different groups that they were there. I mean, he didn't invent anything. He just put together different groups that they already existed, but no one took care of them. For instance, all those who are against the uh, Chinese, those who, who've been fired at their car factory job in Detroit, and they are angry at the Chinese because they feel like they took away their jobs. Uh, then you have all those middle-income workers or low-income workers, white workers, who are, uh, they feel a little bit uh, frustrated or even humiliated by all those Mexican immigrants who are probably doing better than them and they feel humiliated, so therefore they hate Mexicans. Those groups, they existed before Trump. The difference is that Trump paid attention to them. They were unrepresented, uh, unrepresented by the political mainstream, either, be, be, either because some politicians or some strategies, they thought that they were not big enough as to dedicate any time to them, or because they were toxic, like no one wants to show up as a racist. So Donald Trump just went there and, sell, and said, okay, there is a niche here, another niche here, another niche here, I'm gonna put them all together and answer to their political frustrations and put them all together under the umbrella of an empty significant. An empty significant is, a, the way Podemos puts it, it's, a, it's an expression created by this uh, Argentinian philosopher called Ernesto Laclau. And an empty significant is a word with no specific meaning, but with thousands of connotations. For instance, make America great again. That's an empty significant, the great America, make it great again. What does it mean? Well, for some people, Make America Great Again means kicking out all these Mexicans. For other people, Make America Great Again is closing trade with uh, Asia or China. For other people, Make America Great Again could be, I don't know, Make America a Muslim country. It could, make, it could mean whatever, but Donald Trump gives it this meaning. Make America Great Again means America free of Mexicans, the America free of Chinese, and an America where you can say the N-word in public and no one, no one is going to frown upon you. There is something important that, that, that we have to keep in mind. Those groups that Donald Trump merged into one empty significant, they, they didn't have to be together because a lot of people, usually the analysts and, and, and pundits, they usually take all these different groups that are under the umbrella of conservatism or liberalism as if they were meant to each other. If, uh, for some reason, uh, before, fiscal conservatives and hawkish conservatives, they were meant to each other. It's not true. Actually, if they are under the same platform, it's because some politician or some good advisor, or by pure chance, uh, they happen to be under the same umbrella, but they, 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 they shouldn't have to be together. And the same happens now with uh, all these... Uh, uh, Donald Trump supporters. I mean, they are together now because Donald Trump puts them together. So if we if we look at the rise of Trump through 
the Podemos playbook, the Podemos method framework, we've kind of checked off a couple of boxes now, right? We've created a rhetoric that unites and conquers. It brings a lot of disparate groups together with this concept of the empty significance that is also sufficiently vague so that people can more or less subscribe whatever meaning they want to it and feel like they're on board. So the next step is this concept of the opposite that we talked about. So he's done these first couple of things, but how has Trump defined his message in respect to an opposite? What is Trump's opposite or his rhetoric's opposite? Well, I guess this leads to another concept, another checkbox we have to talk about, and it's the problematization. How to turn something into a problem, which is also very important in order to appeal to these groups. So first, the first step is you go to someone and you say, okay, you are in a bad situation, right? Yes, you are. Well, this situation, this, uh, I mean, you lost your job. You can blame it on uh, yourself. You can say, I'm unproductive, I'm clumsy, so that's why I got fired. You can blame it on the economical environment. You can blame it on, capi on capitalism, or you can blame it on the Chinese, or you can blame it on the corrupted politicians. So first, I tell you that you have a problem. I tell you that this problem can be solved but it can be solved if we get rid of that person who, I, who, who, who I'm going to blame. And depending on who you blame, the problem is going to be absolutely different. In the case of Donald Trump, the, the enemy is uh, one external enemy, China and Mexico, and one internal enemy who is all these corrupted politicians, which is, by the way, a very narrow concept. Because when he talks about the crooked politicians, yes, okay, we know that he's talking about Hillary Clinton because she was his opponent. But but there is more. There is way more. I mean, the enemy, it can be whoever you want. It's like um, this teenager rhetoric that you can hear in some rock and roll song sometimes when they are talking about those who are oppressing you, those who are putting your rules. And it can be whoever you have in mind as a crook person. It can be those who are in the campus, in the university campus, uh, trying to fight against, uh, fight for political correctness. Uh, how, how do you call them? The war, uh, social justice warriors. This can be also part of the enemies, uh, the Democrats, the liberals, the corrupted politicians, whoever you can, you want to see as an enemy, you can, you can put it there on this, on this field. So yeah, it's, it's less about, it's less about, you know, this point by point thing and more about creating this feeling and that the, I think I remember the solutions to that feeling. So you've politicized it. It's because of an enemy. And you said something about the solutions have to be like very visual and very tangible. And so Maybe this is a softball, but can you give us an example of something very visual and tangible that Donald <laughs> Trump suggested as a solution? Yeah, well, uh, clearly the, the wall. I mean, the wall... A big, beautiful wall. That's it. There you go. But it's not the first time some politician uses it. I mean, uh, okay, in the case of Donald Trump, I, I'm i not a big fan. I mean, okay, I, I guess people can tell by listening to me that I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. But... For instance, when Kennedy was talking about uh, reaching... 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To the stars, reaching to the moon was also the same. It was a very visual, uh, visual thing, visual concept that everyone can imagine, everyone can see in their head. In their head, they can draw it. They can paint it, they can see it. It's also big enough as to enhance your soul and make you feel like inspired and realistic enough as to think that it's something that you can achieve. Like uh, when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, it sounded uh, like achievable. Or when Donald Trump says, let's build a boat, uh, let's build a wall. Well, it's something that it can be done. If Kennedy would have said, uh, let's go to Mars, probably it wouldn't have had the same impact because it was clearly that it was impossible. So I would say that, yeah, it's uh, when you're making a product, when you, when you want to create a, a powerful message that resonates in your audience, there are like three things, three check thing, uh, checklist, checkbox, you have to, to put the check in. The first one is it has to be visualizable, like you have to be able to to imagine it and make a, a drawing of it in your mind. So don't talk about lowering taxes or lowering inflation because no one can imagine that. You have to put always some visual example. Second. So like money in your pocket. Money in your pocket or make your grocery shopping cheaper or make you able to go on holidays every year because you're, you're gonna be able to save more money. So you go to Bali every summer and have this dream trip you always wanted to have. Sign me up. <laughs> you see, that's that, that's the first thing. And all the politicians should, should learn about this because it's very powerful, not only for convincing people to vote for you, but also to explain things. And we use it in visual politics, actually. We never say inflation is bad or we never say this politician created a lot of inflation. We say... When you went to, if you would have gone to Venezuela two years ago and you would have ordered one beer, it would have cost you one dollar. Now, if you do the same, you're going to pay three dollars. This is inflation. So people can imagine it. So first thing, something visual. The second thing is it has to be 
realistic, something that it can be done, or people think that it can be done. A wall between Mexico and the States, it's something that it can be done. Like, I can imagine a wall, if you can make a one kilometer long wall, you can make a 2,000 kilometer long wall. You will need more money, but there is no rocket science needed to, to make such a thing. So it's realistic. And the third one, it has to be something big enough as to inspire people. Like Donald Trump didn't say, okay, let's make a wall between all in Texas. No, no, the whole frontier, the whole frontier between US and Mexico is gonna be covered by this wall and it's gonna be beautiful, it's gonna be big. People like big things. Especially in the United States. Especially in the United States, but also, also in Europe, also everywhere else. I mean, European Union uh, used to be a, a dream that most of the people used to share because it was like, dude, it's big. We're going to become like the United States of Europe. Sounds good. Actually, that's a, that, that's a problem that the, all the European politicians are facing now. They don't know how to make European Union sexy. Actually, and, and actually, a, a, a lot of these things... There, there's one book, it's not a Marxist book at all, but uh, it's really interesting, written by Robert Greene, you might hear about him. It's called The Art of Seduction, and he tells you how to seduce people, not only your, the girl you like or the, the boy you like, but also the voter, the, the customer, and the first thing is you have to give something that enhances your soul, that really fills your imagination with something big, something inspiring, something powerful, something you can dream about. So if you don't like Mexicans for whatever reason, and you don't want to have Mexicans in your uh, your country, well, a, a wall is, is a thing. Yeah, and he connects it to working. He connects it to, you know, having a job and feeding your family and having dignity. And what I found very interesting about how he markets and talks about the wall is that, and a lot of people find this surprising, the United States has already building, been building a border fence in order to keep, you know, in order to limit illegal immigration. It's doubled in size in the last eight years under President Obama. Um, and President Obama has deported two and a half million undocumented immigrants. And Donald Trump is talking about three million. And what's so interesting is that Donald Trump's policy is so similar to Obama's policy Yet he talks about it in a way that really gets some people excited and gets some people really angry. And I was thinking about that when I, when I sort of read those facts for the first time. I was very surprised. And one of the thoughts I had was, does Donald Trump really know deep down what, is, what he's doing? Is he, I know you talked about, you know, in the past, people did this marketing intuitively and Podemos made the playbook. And I'm just going to ask you to speculate do you think that Donald Trump is just lucky, you know, that he, he just happens to be on point? Is he sort of an intuitive genius that he figured out something politically on his own, you know, that others missed? As Paul Ryan said, he, he heard something that everyone else is deaf to. Or third, do you think he read your book and said, aha, this is what I need. It's going to be huge. Uh, I think that's the one. He read my book. <laughs> yeah. Turns out Trump actually speaks fluent Spanish. He's just <laughs> keeping it yeah. on the QT. He's but, keeping it but, on the DL. Don't want to know. But he hates Spanish enough as not to call me and say, hey, I, I want you to be the my, my head of advisors. I don't know. Look, I, I, I've never been in the U.S. I've been working in campaigns, but only in Europe. 
so I don't know how it works in how it really works in US. But I would say that Washington political advisors, these people, they they know what they are doing. So I don't think it's improvisation. Just don't forget that his first advisor, his his first political strategist, used to work for Yanukovych, used to work for a lot of European politicians. So especially in Ukraine, I'm pretty sure he got some insight from the Marxist mentality. Because don't forget that Yanukovych was like. He came from a former USSR country, so I'm pretty sure that he knew that rhetoric of antagonism and dialectic rhetoric, and it's nothing new. It's nothing new, and Donald Trump had a lot of money to hire really smart people for his campaign, so I don't think it was pure chance. I think the reason I asked is, is in the United States, so many people believe and and the media establishment republicans democrats like conventional political analysts just kept saying over and over again that donald trump was running himself into the ground over and over they said this is crazy it's not working it's terrible he's going to lose and so i think the reason i asked is so many people were surprised that he won that it seems he hired not only some smart people but some very unconventional thinkers who understood this in a way that almost nobody else did. And I guess the other person he hired that may have uh, been very influential here was, of course, Steve Bannon of Breitbart, who, of course, called himself in a uh, in an interview with the Daily Beast, called himself a Leninist. I didn't know that one. That's really interesting, and it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, it happened the same with Podemos, actually, at the beginning when they were starting their, their political career. Uh, no one would give two cents for uh, for them. Uh, the first poll suggested that they would have only one seat in the European Parliament. The first elections they, they were running to were the European elections. And instead of one seat, they got five. So also we had the same in Spain, all this, oh, the pundits and the experts are wrong. They don't know what they are doing. And the polls are just pure speculation but they don't they don't work for anything else i i would I, I would say one let me let me give you some personal thought on this i guess the majority of the people who are listening to this podcast at this moment they think already that all the podemos playbook and all the donald trump's playbook and what you can call the populist playbook is something wrong something unethical something dishonest but let me tell you something. There are a lot of good takeaways we can take from Donald Trump and Podemos because they were one of the first politicians in quite a long time that were talking about politics, about policies. You can like it or dislike it. You can like Donald Trump or dislike Donald Trump, but you know what he was standing for. If you would have gone to the, if you would have visited Hillary Clinton's website, during the primary elections, and you would have clicked on issues or program, I don't remember how she was putting it, uh, but you would have tried to search her program, there was nothing. In the programs page, it was written, sorry, we are still working on improving the website, try to come back later. But instead you had lots of pictures of Hillary Clinton holding babies, smiling, being a good citizen, and trying to, to be charming. And, and this is not pure chance as well, this is, the outcome of the, the, the general mentality of most of the political strategies. 
And I know this because I've worked with several of them and I've gone to all these uh, workshops and seminars for politicians where the main idea is don't talk about politics, don't, polit don't talk about your program because people are not interested about that, don't waste your time talking about politics, just try to appeal to their emotions, to the voters' emotions. So let them see you going to the church if you're appealing to a conservative audience or going to an event with a lot of minorities if you're appealing to a liberal audience. But no one cares about your proposals. So yeah, the classical political playbook is not more honest, it's not more ethical. It's actually a little bit dumb if you, if you think about it. So, and, and this is, this is like the, the mainstream and the, the orthodox of the political campaigns until now, probably. Is that? Is, uh, no, forget about politics. Just uh, hold babies, kiss veterans or whatever you do in America. Kiss veterans. Just, <laughs> yeah, or kiss or hold them or I don't know, do something with the veterans because they are really nice people and go to the church. Go to some retirement house and spend some time with the grandpas, play cards with them or do whatever, and hold a lot of babies, and, and also try to sell. There's another good takeaway we should learn from Donald Trump, and is that uh, we don't have to treat people as idiots. Like, especially in America, this especially goes for the Amer your American audience. American politics are really candidate-oriented and they are very uh, focused on the personality of the candidate and trying to sell a fake idea that the candidate is perfect. He's a perfect citizen, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't cheat on his wife, he makes a sport every day, uh, he's a patriot, he's a Christian, he's not an atheist, and people don't get that. People don't believe that someone can be so good and so perfect. Everyone has some vice. Some people drink. Some people like to eat McDonald's every day and not going to the gym. And, and that's normal. That's life. And for instance, we've been so used to, to see all these politicians pretending to be good that when Donald Trump appears being, well, a little bit, a little bit bigger than and respectful to women, all the pundits thought, well, this is gonna definitely kill him. But it didn't, because people like when someone is a little bit more... I mean, I'm not saying Donald Trump is honest, but at least he's trying... The, the, the image of himself he's trying to sell is consistent, and it's believable. It's credible. Right, it seems more authentic and real. This is more authentic and real than most of the politicians. And in US, I think it's really crazy. Like, all this... All this morality that all the politicians have to have to follow, but in, in Europe we have it not not at the same scale, but we have it similar. And definitely, this idea of focusing the campaign on the personality of the candidate and kiss people, uh, smile, and I don't know. In Spain, for instance, uh, this is the typical question: uh, What kind of music do you like? And all the candidates they end up. Asking the, answering the same thing. Yeah, I like uh, all these from the 80s. Because this is the kind of music no one hates. Like if you say, oh, mm, well, uh, I like flamenco. Well, probably a lot of people are gonna stereotype you or put you into some cliche. Uh, I like um, death metal. Oh, do you like death metal? What kind of person are you? Yeah, what kind of person likes death metal? What kind of Not person us. likes Not death us. metal? Not us. That would be crazy. <laughs> that would be really crazy. No, uh, you, you know what I mean. Like, 
at the end of the day, they all have to answer the same thing. And, and well, you just have some Donald Trump and you don't know how to react to him. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like Donald Trump is really good at playing this game that he knows he's playing. And Hillary Clinton is not even aware that she's playing the same game. And that's that's kind of where this dichotomy is. So you talk about like, you know who Donald Trump is. You know, make America great again, while at the same time, that's such a vague statement that it can appeal to anyone. So there are, there are all these, it's marketing. He knows that he's marketing something, and Hillary Clinton, well, she was a policy wonk, as a lot of people described her, and she never really was effective, at least in this campaign, in honing in on sort of that, that emotional response, right? So we've been talking a lot about Trump and how this Podemos method can up or apply to him in this campaign. I'm curious, because both Podemos and the Trump surge are really types of populist movements, right? So can this marketing strategy be applied to other ideologies or platforms, or is it really only relevant to other populist parties? I think it can be applied to everyone in general. I mean, of course, you always have your principles, your values, probably some people are they don't care if they are lying to their voters. Some people, they want to be honest. But in general, the playbook, I think it can be good for uh, for everyone. Here's an example of a politician who used the theory of the empty significant, and I don't think he was a populist, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, he reinvented what it means to be a conservative. He was the person who merged all these fiscal conservatives with the hawkish conservatives and the religious right. They, sh- they didn't have to be together at the, at the first time. Like, uh, actually, someone who, de- who defends, who stands for an increase in the military spending, he shouldn't side with someone who wants to reduce the spending because he's against the government, right? But he kind of put them all together because in that, in that moment, in that historical moment, they were different groups that they were unrepresented by the political mainstream. So he put them all together and, and he said, okay, so now you're all conservative. And, and it worked for him. So, and the same goes with uh, the left wing in, in many other parties and in, in, in many other countries. So, so I think, uh, yeah, you can, you can use this theory. I'm telling you, for instance, here in Europe, I think European politicians, they have a big problem trying to show people what European Union is. And one of the things they, they fail is that they cannot show you what you can get from European Union. I mean, European Union is not a political product anymore because we don't know what kind of problem is it solving. It will be as easy as telling you, for instance, let's not go to European Union because that's too big. But for instance, the TTIP or the TPP. You know, all these uh, trade agreements between U.S. and the Pacific and U.S. and the European Union. No one has told us why is it good for. Like, they just came up with it, all these politicians in a dark room, and they don't tell you why you, you need a free trade agreement. They give for granted that you know it, but you don't know it. In most of the people, most of the friends I've talked to, they, they really think that a European company can trade freely with an American company when, when it's not true. And you need to go through a lot of regulations, a lot of laws, a lot of things. I mean, well, sorry, but I, I think it's okay if, if I let you know that, well, I, I, I stand for the, for the TTIP. Real quick, I'll just say that one of our things on Reconsider is being up like upright and stating 
your admitted biases before you discuss something. So thank you for doing that. That's rad. Okay, okay, okay. So good. I mean, I, I stand for TTAP. But even if you're not, you have to admit that the, the, the way politicians have showed uh, to, the, to the audience what the TTAP is all about was really bad. So then they made it so easy for Russia to come up with Russia today and make a massive campaign in all across Europe, Germany, Spain, against the TTIP, that, that then now the majority of the people is, is against the TTIP. Wow, I had, I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, and the same goes in America. Yeah, it's true. Because people don't know, I mean, uh, people, people don't know why TTIP is good. Why should they go for it? Because in general, people think that the general idea is that now you can trade with America without any problem, or that the Americans, they can trade with Europe without any problem. And it's not true. We have different regulations. So if you want to sell, for instance, uh, you are, um, I don't know, a farmer in the States, and you have some pigs, and you want to sell ham to European market, you can't, because we have different regulations. Uh, also, we have some fairs. So you might have to pay some special tax, but especially we have different regulations. So probably if you want to sell things in Europe, you might want to start a new, a brand new factory and create a new facility in Europe because otherwise it's going to be super hard for you to be able to sell. So therefore only big companies can really trade freely between Europe and, and US because the regulations are really hard. So no one has explained people this. So therefore, Vladimir Putin comes out of the blue with his Russia Today, and he tells you that the TTIP is super bad, is gonna destroy jobs, is gonna create more inequality, is gonna risk your health, because probably here in Europe we're gonna adopt all the American regulations, which everyone knows are super bad, because in America you are dying on the streets. Do you know that? That in America you are dying on the streets because... Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. So, uh, absolutely. So, so, so they tell you this, and since you don't have any other thing on the other side, you fall for what Russia today is telling you. And that's why in Germany, two years ago, 55% of the German population was supporting TTIP. Two years after Russia Today came up and started broadcasting in German, now, only, I think it's 14% of the German population stands for TTIP. For our listeners out there that don't know Russia Today, it is essentially the media arm of the Kremlin. So it's, a, it's sort of a propaganda machine put together by the sort of the Kremlin's Ministry of Information. And uh, it's directed primarily towards foreign countries. And it's parading as a legitimate media outlet, but right. it's, it's not. So I have, uh, I have another question. I think the last question I have about Trump so Podemos has been in power, and what I don't, what I don't know at all, is that you know once Podemos has gotten to power, have you know the the thing I'm curious about is whether they have kept most of their campaign promises or changed them. And the reason I ask is because Donald Trump seems to be starting to change some of his campaign promises. He said he was going to direct the Department of Justice to go after Hillary Clinton. He walked back on that. He said he would absolutely drop out of the Paris climate deal. Now he said he's open-minded and might change his mind. There's a number of other things where he said, well, you know, he, he might keep parts of Obamacare. There's a lot where he said, like, well, maybe it's going to be different now. So sort of what I'm curious about is 
after someone uses this method to win, do they tend to just stay the course? Um, so did Podema stay the course with their campaign promises, or did they did they start to drift and go a different direction? Well, Podemos was, is famous for moderating their speech over time. So they started saying, we want to get out of the Eurozone, we are against the Euro, and we will not pay any penny to the Germans. And now they say, okay, well, Euro is okay, and we might pay part of the debt, maybe not all, but we'll pay part of our debts. And yeah, they, they they basically moderated their speech. Not so much, but you can tell they, they've done it. So yes, I think one of the drawbacks of this Podemos playbook is that sometimes you have to moderate your speech and it looks like you are kind of a wishy-washy. On the other hand, when it comes to the government, it's really hard to predict because, okay, Podemos is not in the government and there are only two examples that we can take. One is Barcelona and the other one is Madrid, two the two biggest cities in Spain, and they are all government uh, governed by not Podemos candidates, but candidates that were supported by Podemos. They were running as independents, but but they were clearly supported by Podemos. So in Madrid, you have a kind of a moderate liberal mayor who is open for business. Okay, she, she's done some left-leaning policies, but in general, she's supporting rule of law. She's letting business to be open. She's open to talk with banks. I mean, she's not doing anything crazy. But then you have in Barcelona, this other mayor who has been trying to put a ban on new companies like Airbnb or Uber. She's trying to put a lot of restrictions on the hotels and all the businesses. Don't forget that Barcelona is a very touristical city. So when you are talking about putting some restrictions on how many hotel rooms you can have in your hotel, or you are forcing me to close some of my rooms because I cannot have so many tourists, uh, that's a big deal in a city like Barcelona. Or, well, her last decision was to create her own currency. So he created the local currency. I don't know how it works, but she did it. So you have two examples and they are pretty extreme. In one hand, you have what you would say a, a, a real extremist politician, a left-leaning extremist politician. And on the other hand, in Madrid, you have another politician who is moderate. You can like her or not, but, but she's not a radical. She's not a communist. She's just, okay left-leaning, but, but it, it's not something radical. So I would say that it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen with Donald Trump. He might become, he might do only 20% of what he promised, or he might do everything. We don't know. So stepping back and kind of looking at the big picture, we've seen Podemos, we've seen Trump, we've seen how they've implemented similar strategies, similar marketing strategies. And now I want to think, what are the implications going forward for political scenes more generally? You know, is this the death of detail and consistency? Are we doomed to generalities and contradictions? Or will effective policies actually be able to make way at some point again. What does this look like seen through the lens of the Podemos playbook? I think it all depends on what the other candidates, 
let's say the non-populist candidates want to do if they want to keep doing their thing and they want to keep holding babies and kissing veterans well then yes then it's gonna be the death of inconsistency if they realize that you have to teach people not not, not teach you have to uh, show people why your policies are good and why are, are they good for them then probably it's not the death of let's say liberalism i would say actually now i would say that there is a uh, clash between liberal politics and, and when I say liberal I say it in a really broad term you know I'm not talking about left-winger politicians or right-winger politicians in Spain because they, as you know in part of Europe liberalism means quite the opposite as in Europe uh, as in US uh, when I'm talking when I'm talking about liberal liberalism I'm talking about in the broader sense of democracy rule of law a lot of individual rights limited government power individual rights, limited government, power, that's what I talk, uh, that's what I mean when I talk about liberalism. I think now there is a, a clash between liberal, uh, classical liberal politicians and these populist movements, no matter nationalist movements, populist movements, no matter if they are right or left-wingers, but they exist and they are clearly against free trade, against individual rights, limited government, rule of law, all these things. So I would say that this is the death if of inconsistency and certainty as long as liberal politicians keep kissing babies and kissing holding veterans. If they start talking about their policies and showing and, and, and showing the people why their policies are good and they take some of the good takeaways from the populist playbook which are some of them are good if they use them then there is nothing to worry about i think that's one of the most interesting takeaways that i took from your book which is yes marxism has this effective marketing strategy kind of built into its ideology but a study of that marketing strategy does not restrict itself necessarily to Marxism, and some of that can be applied to other political ideologies, other political parties that do have rational, reasonable, well, I mean, rationality in politics is relative, but do have more reasonable policies that can be applied to those more moderate parties. So that was, that was one of the most interesting takeaways for me. Actually, the book is called Marxist Marketing for Non-Marxist Political Parties, so... There you go. Well, Fonseca, I, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I think we should probably go ahead and wrap up, because if we don't, I'm afraid that this conversation is so interesting that I'll just keep having it for like another two hours and yep. we'll never let you go. So, again, remember that Fonseca has a YouTube channel called Visual Politique, and right now... You can see Visual Politik English, which is a brand new channel, which has more of this insightful, cutting political analyses, all packed into a 10-minute YouTube video with very appealing and relevant images. So definitely, definitely check those out. If you're a Spanish speaker, check out Visual Politik, the original channel, and check out Fonseca's book, The Podemos Method, or El Método Podemos. And uh, yeah, again, thanks so much for joining us. So goodbye everyone, and I'm looking forward to see you on Visual Politik, both in Spanish and in English. See you, ciao! As always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Andrew signing off. This is Eric signing off. Adios!
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.